are we here in this time? This place? What are we made for? Our lives have purpose. God has a calling for each one of us. General. Specific. In our families, our workplaces, our church, our city, our country, our world. Clarity in our calling. Purpose in our present. Our great God is offering us something beautiful. When I was 14, my parents made a decision to uproot our family and move. I had no choice in the matter. They didn't consult with the kids. They just decided we're going west. I had been raised in a big city, the city of Calgary, and I discovered as we moved that my high school had more kids enrolled in high school than the whole population of the town we were moving to, a little town called Yarrow. I was not happy. I had no choice in the matter, and I felt trapped. So how do you think about where you live? Do you love where you live? Do you love your city? Are you indifferent to it? Or worse yet, do you just want to get out of where you are, get to another place, another city? Today we're looking at Jeremiah chapter 29, and the people of Israel are not happy about where they are. Now you may be familiar with a verse that's in this chapter, but not familiar with its context. It makes a great fridge magnet. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Really? Do you know the location of God's people at this moment and what he's asking of them? Maybe you're like me, and for most of my life, I've not had a, theolo a theology of location. What, I'm, what I mean by that is I have not really thought critically about what God thinks about where I live geographically. As we look at Jeremiah today, though, we're going to find that there's a direct connection between calling and where we live. God wants you and I to live well where we are. Historically, in this chapter, we find Israel reaping the rewards of their disobedience against God. Repeatedly, the prophets had warned them, but now they are suffering the, the fact that they've rebelled against God. And, and in the relationship with God, they've acted like adulterers, often looking to other gods or other things and giving that their affections. As a result, God disciplines his people. He calls a nation at the turn of the 6th century BC, the, the most powerful nation at the time, Babylon, and he sends them and they assault the city of Jerusalem. The city that is like the capital of the people. It's where their identity is wrapped up into. It's where the kings rule. It's where the priests conduct their worship. It's where the temple is. Jerusalem, beautiful Jerusalem. But it will not stand against Babylon. Today we talk a lot about the second wave, and it's not a good thing. And here in Jeremiah, the people are also experiencing a second wave, and it is not a good thing. It's a wave of deportation. Earlier, the leaders and the brights, like Daniel, have been taken to Babylon, and now more citizens are taken. They're confiscated against their choice and removed from the city to Babylon. Jeremiah's uh, letter follows them to that place, Babylon. Maybe you're familiar with the story in Genesis chapter 11 where it talks about the Tower of Babel and, and Babel meaning like confusion where the languages confuse the people. Babylon speaks of that, a place of chaos, a place of confusion. In contrast, in, in the early Syriac languages, Jeru means city and Shalem means like peace and wholeness. The children of Israel are experiencing an incredible downgrade 
from peace and wholeness to chaos and confusion. That's where they are. They are exiles on the margins of power. And that's good for us to know because that's where we are. And when you're in a situation that's similar to someone else, you can share your stories and learn from the stories of one another. So hear this, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, you are in exile. You are not living in your homeland. You are living in exile on the margins of power. And this is more true today possibly than it's ever been for those who live in Canada and North America. See, it used to be that in some communities and the cities, the church was at the center of society. In fact, even the location of the church building would be centered in the city and people would come to it. Lots of people went to church. They ascribed to a Judeo-Christian ethic, but not today. Today, the church, especially in Canada, it's, it's on the margins, like it's out there, not in a place of power. The church is looked at as irrelevant by most society and by some destructive and harmful. And it's in this place that God speaks to us. And listen to what he says in Jeremiah chapter 29. Verse four, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, before we go further, I just gotta stop there because let's, let's look up a couple of verses and read verse one and, and hear what Jeremiah has written there. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse one says Nebuchadnezzar carried them into exile. Verse four says God sent them into exile. So what is it? Who's responsible here? Did Nebuchadnezzar take them or did God? Well, yes and yes. So often when we move, we think I made the choice. I moved because I chose a job that I had to move to to take that job. I moved because oh, I, wanted, I had a relationship and I needed to get there to further that relationship. I moved because I was tired of where I was living and I wanted to move to a different city because it, 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 it was attractive. It looked like a great city to live in. I made the choice. And, and yes, you did. And we make the choice. But at the same time, we need to realize that ultimately God's sovereignty has been at work right to the point of where you live. So that where you live matters that God has been at work in placing you and fitting you as part of your calling so that you can live well in that place. In Proverbs chapter 16, when we did our series in the summer, we saw that in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Paul speaks of location as he's in Athens in Acts chapter 17, and as he's talking to them about God, he says to them, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. You are able to breathe because God gave you breath. You are living where you are, not just because you made the choice and you did do that, but also because God's ultimate sovereignty has been at work. And so maybe as it's true for the nations that God determined their exact places, so it could be true for you that God has placed you and where he's placed you, he's called you and he's called you to live well where you are because he has a purpose for you there. 
We are in exile, but we're not people who are living in a place without purpose. And so as we look at Jeremiah chapter 29 further, here's what he calls the exile to do in living out their calling. It's a call to commitment, to service, and to prayer. Commit to your city. Jeremiah 29 verse 5 says, Build your houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Jeremiah is giving instructions to Israel to do things that take time. If you build a house, it takes time to do that, but also you don't build a house if you're going, planning on moving soon. Having a family, I mean, we all know it takes usually, typically nine months to have a child. That takes time. If you're going to have several, it takes a while to build up a family. If you're going to love and serve your city, it's going to be very difficult to do that if you're always thinking about how you can leave that city. Having an eye to escape doesn't work in a marriage relationship, and it doesn't work well in your relationship to the place where you live. Plant a garden, eat its produce. That takes time. Just like it takes time to cultivate a relationship with people, a relationship of trust develops over time as people see your consistent quality of character. The people of Israel, we are to put our roots down and be committed in that way. I was talking to a missionary once. Uh, he'd been in Africa, and they'd gone to a village and shared the good news of Jesus Christ with the people there. And they, the people were very receptive, but the chief said to them, you know, we, we don't want to make a decision so quickly. We actually want to watch your lives first. They wanted to see if it really was real in the way that it worked in their relationships. Joseph Aldrich wrote the classic lifestyle evangelism. He was the president of Multnomah Bible School in Portland. And he said, some of the most powerful witnesses to Jesus Christ are a healthy church and a healthy family. See, as we invite people into our healthy relationships, as we follow Jesus, they're gonna see what we model. But we have to be there, we have to be committed. There has to be time for that to happen. But as they see it over time, fruit happens. A couple of Thanksgivings ago, we uh, invested in a ministry in Vancouver called Meta Ministries. Dennis and Miston, Wilkin and Miston Wilkinson, um, Parents of family of four from the United States felt a call to go to Vancouver and plant a church. This was not an easy thing, especially with such a large family, with just housing, finding housing. And I observed over the years how difficult that has been for them as renters when they've been forced to move and, and trying to find a new place for their family. And there's been all kinds of other challenges that I'm, I'm so aware of, but they have persevered. They put their roots down, they stay committed to the city, and it's been amazing to watch the relationships they have developed as they open up their lives to people who don't know Jesus so they could observe what it looks like to follow him in family and in church. They're committed to the city, and it's a beautiful thing, and it bear, has bared, borne fruit. Now, before I leave this point, um, please hear me. I'm not saying that it's always wrong to move. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we need to think critically about where we live. And before we make a move of location, to have a conversation with God and to make sure that that conversation is the priority in our decision. God may be saying, hey, go where you want to go. I'll bless you in the, in the location that you want to go to. He may be saying, actually, I do want you to move and I'm calling you now to a new location. Or he, he may be saying, hey, I know it's hard where you are right now, but I want you to stay. 
This actually happened to the Apostle Paul on one of his missionary journeys. He was in Corinth, and it was a difficult place. Like He, he was experiencing heaps of abuse, but in that place, God speaks to him. And we read in Acts chapter 18, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed, stayed committed, and a lot of great things happened as a result of that. We are called to be committed to the location where we are so that God can work in us and through us his purposes. Secondly, we serve our city. Verse 7, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Do you have any neighbors you find difficult to like or to love? Now think about the Israelites and Babylon. There is no way an Israelite would have a natural disposition to seek the peace and prosperity, to seek the welfare of a Babylonian. They were their captors. They they were their oppressors. And the mannerisms, the customs, the superstitions of, of the Babylonians were surely repulsive to Israel. Do you have a neighbor of another ethnic culture that grates you? Do you have a neighbor you find very difficult to get along with? Seek the welfare of your city. Seek the welfare of the people in your city. God is calling us to do something we may not have a natural disposition to do, to think beyond ourselves, beyond our own families, and beyond our own friendships and relationships, to think actually of the the place where we live, the city or the town, and to seek its welfare. To do that, you have to invest yourself. You have to care about what's going on. You have to become informed. And then you have to roll up your sleeves and do something about it. You know, you've got to do acts of kindness, express generosity, hospitality. This is the Christian way. We read in Galatians chapter 6, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So we do good things, and, and, and you got to realize this means getting outside of the church. It may mean to become involved in a school board or a not-for-profit society. It may be to coach a sports like soccer or basketball. It's to get outside. It's to go. It's to be involved. It's to be a place and a person of influence. Like Jesus said when he talked about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. You see what God's doing in you? He wants to use that to be an influence in the city in which you live. In our vision statement at Central Heights, it says this, a movement of more and growing followers of Jesus, developing healthy churches for the glory of God and the flourishing of our city and the world. That last part of the vision statement, the flourishing of our city and world, it's one of our goals, and it's one of the things that drive us to do what we do. As a leader, sometimes you're looking at, hey, how are we doing as a community of faith and living out the vision that we feel God has called us to? When I think about the flourishing of our city and the world, I just have to commend so many of you at Central Heights as I look and the way some of you are serving, whether it's at Jackson School or the Food Bank whether it's the women's drop-in center. Some of you are engaged with the homeless. I see people helping others move. I see people delivering groceries. And of course, so many of you that give so generously of your finances every Thanksgiving. This is how we come and we serve our city. And it's so beautiful. Our good works adorn the gospel. You see, the gospel and, and what we're all about as followers of Jesus 
needs to be adorned. It needs to look beautiful as it is. But beyond that, we also need to speak the gospel. This is the other part of of seeking the welfare of our city and serving it, is that we need to speak the reason, the hope that is within us, our relationship with Jesus Christ. And if ever our world and our city needed a message of hope and peace, today is it. The message is still relevant. When Paul was speaking to a group of Israelites in Acts chapter 3, he talks to them about the goodness of Jesus. And when he gets to the end of his proclamation, he says, when God raised up his servant, Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. One of the ways we seek the welfare of our city, and we want to see them blessed as we preach, we speak the good news of Jesus Christ to them because the response to that is not only faith, it's also a turning. That's what the word repentance means. There's a turning to Jesus and a turning away from other things, which the Bible here describes as wicked things. You see, there's such a blessing when people find a place and turning from things like to be freed from pornography, to be freed from habitual lying, to be freed from immorality, from sexual promiscuity, from sexual abuse, to be freed from racism. All these things are harmful to people and harmful to our society, to our world. And people are blessed when they turn to Jesus and turn away from those things because they've heard the good news, they've heard the gospel. Uh, We need to commit to our city, the place where we are. We need to serve our city, the place we are, both in the things that we do and the words that we speak. But then also we need to pray. And this is also part of Jeremiah's instruction. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. 1 Timothy 2 says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. In Jeremiah's instruction and Paul's instructions to Timothy, there's this theme that as we seek the welfare of others and in particular pray for them, it has a reciprocal effect of coming back to us, welfare and the ability to lead peaceful and godly lives. I was so excited in recent where we had the Abbotsford Neighborhood Prayer Walk and how as we prayed for our city in that way, we also, I think, learned so much more about our city and and compassion developed in our heart. It raised up and as you're beginning to think more about the people and 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 the systems that live in our city and then begin to pray for it, it's not that hard. But my fear is as you as you hear this third thing, to pray for your city, that it's just so easy to discount it. I mean, Oh yeah, okay, yeah, that's the standard Christian thing to do, and I'm not really that kind of person. I'm not a prayer guy or prayer girl, and I'm sure someone else will do it. And does God really, like, does it really make a difference? Oh, yes, it does. Prayer is a chief means whereby God accomplishes his purpose on the earth and in your city. Daniel was one of the exiles to Babylon, and in his book, he's held up as this example for us, and He's a man of integrity, but he's also a man of prayer, committed prayer. In fact, you're probably familiar with the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den because he would not disregard his habitual habit of praying three times a day. He was committed to prayer. Later in the book of Daniel, in chapter 9, he says, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. 
Daniel understood that Jeremiah had prophesied that Israel would return from Babylon to Jerusalem in 70 years. God has given his word on that, and yet Daniel feels compelled to pray that it will be so. And he gives himself to fasting and prayer and crying out to God on behalf of his people and behalf of the city of Jerusalem and, and the temple there. In, in his prayer at one point, there's, a, there's an, a, an angelic being that comes who looks like a man and he speaks to Daniel and, and he talks to him about how Daniel has given himself to prayer, but there was something going on in the spiritual realm while this was happening. Listen to what he says. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day, the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourselves before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. That's an amazing story and an amazing insight and glimpse into what was going on in the heavenly realm. Daniel was heard his very first day. And when he prayed, heaven responded. But it took time because of some kind of conflict going on in that spiritual realm. Hey, we do not know what's going on in that world that we cannot see. But we do know that as we pray, God hears and God responds. And so we pray for the welfare of our city as we seek it and as we're committed to it. Committed, serving, praying for enemies for a place I find difficult. Israel's called to do this, and you and I are too. I mean, how is this possible? This seems so difficult. Well, I think it's a picture of the gospel. See, God is, God is showing us, he's only asking of us what we've already received. You think about God's commitment to you and to me. God was so committed to us, loved us so much. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, you think about restrictions that Israel had and maybe that you have in your life right now. Think about the restrictions of Jesus Christ in becoming a human being, taking on our human flesh from what he knew before. Now to be confined to a physical body, but he takes on human flesh. He's committed to us to do that. And then he serves us. He said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And he serves to the utmost limit to give his life away on a cross so that through his death and then his resurrection, whoever puts their faith and trust in him and repents from their wicked ways and follows Jesus and puts their trust in him can have a relationship with him as Jesus, who is now the resurrected Savior at the right hand of the Father, lives forevermore to intercede. He prays for you, we are told in the book of Hebrews. God's committed to you. He served you. He served me. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. And as we receive that, as we let that soak in, we realize, oh man, I am the recipient of so much that for me to commit to serve and to pray for others and to pray for my city is simply a reflection of all that I've received in him. It's not to earn God's grace. It's not to earn his love. It's because I've already received it in such amazing amounts. And part of that gospel story, that good news, is that this is not my final destination. It wasn't for Israel. They would return from Babylon and go back to Jerusalem. So where you and I live right now, wherever you are in this world, this is not our final destination. Remember, we are exiles and our homeland is yet to come. We read about that in Revelation chapter 21. It says, I saw the holy city, 
the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Then we will see the ultimate fulfillment of Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, as God has said, good plans, plans to prosper us, give us hope, give us peace. Could you use some of that right now? Do you yearn for something better, for something more? I do, and I'm sure you do too. We were made for that because this is not our homeland. Israel is to commit themselves to their location, their temporary location of Babylon, and to live there and to live well because it would prepare them for their return to Jerusalem. As they multiplied their family and were fruitful and prosper, that would prepare them to be able to go back as a, as a good group of people. And so for you and I, as we live well in the, lo- in the location that God has placed us now, it prepares us for that future location when all we will know is the perfectness of God. I began this talk today telling you about when I was 14 and we had that move from the big city to the small town. I have to admit, when it first happened and we landed in that small town of Euro, I made my parents pretty miserable by bad behavior. But at some point, something clicked within me and I made a decision, I made a choice to make the best of it. And some amazing things happened. Um, Where we lived was very close to the Vetter River and I learned to walk along the dike there and began to really appreciate God's creation in a new way. Uh, I learned to fish, and so I learned to appreciate the different salmon and steelhead runs that came up the river and just enjoy time there. I had more time in solitude because I didn't have as many friends in that community, and I learned to pray. I learned what it was to just spend time with God and to begin to hear his voice and to walk with him. God works so many great things in my life, even to the fact of, hey, meeting some farmers, getting to know them, and then helping them in their work a couple of times, like bailing hay. I even developed some muscles through the process. What I discovered was, as I began to look at what God wanted to do in the place that he had me, he worked some great and beautiful things. And he'll do that with you too. We started this series talking about how God has a calling on you as an individual, that God sees you, you have a purpose, you are not here by accident, you have a calling. And so it is that you, are, you don't live where you live by accident either. God has a calling on your life and he wants to do something significant in your life in the place that where you live. As you have seen that God is committed to you, that he has served you, that he's praying for you, so you can be that in the place where he's called you to be committed, to serve, to pray, to seek the welfare of the community, the town, the city in which you live so that God will be glorified and you will be blessed to be a blessing. I wanna pray for us, I wanna pray for the city that we live in here at Central Heights, that is Abbotsford, and after that, I'm gonna pray for you. God, we thank you that we are under your watchful eye and care. We thank you, Lord, for the place that you've given to us. For those of us who live here in Abbotsford, we wanna thank you for our city. I wanna thank you for the people that live here. I wanna thank you for our history. And God, today especially, I want to pray for the leaders of our city, in particular for our mayor, Henry Braun. I thank you for a man who has a personal faith in you, who loves you, 
and really wants to do his job for the best and for the good of the city. I pray for your wisdom to clothe him and the other leaders that are around him. Lord, we wanna pray for our first responders, we wanna pray for our police, our fire, our education, those who work in healthcare, Lord. So many people that are giving themselves for the good of our city. We ask you to bless them today and break through in their lives and whatever way they, they need your breakthrough, God, would you break through in their lives and most supremely, would you reveal yourself to them that they may know the goodness of what it is to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And God, for, for us that are watching or listening at this moment, Lord, I wanna pray. I wanna pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to help us to see in a new way all that you've done for us. The depths to which you are committed to us and love us. The depths to which you have gone to serve us and how you are so for us that Jesus himself is still praying and the Holy Spirit is at work in that same process so that you see us, you hear us, and you work for our good and for your glory. Lord, we are eternally grateful. And on this Thanksgiving weekend, we wanna say thank you, God. Amen.